Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Dozens of current and former employees of the New York City Housing Authority were arrested earlier this month. They've been slapped with federal charges of bribery and extortion for taking kickbacks from companies getting housing development contracts. The Housing and Urban Development's Office of Inspector General helped conduct the multi-agency investigation leading to those charges. IG Ray Oliver Davis joins me now with details. Ms. Davis, good to have you back. Oh, thank you so much, Tom. I really appreciate your interest in this case. And what was the nature of the case? It sounds like pretty old-fashioned bribery. We'll give you a contract, we get a kickback, and la-di-da. Exactly. It's it's uh, what you hear law enforcement call a pay-to-play scheme. And what we learned w- was that superintendents throughout NYCHA were taking bribes in order to award contracts. These were what we call micro-purchase, uh, micro-purchase contracts, meaning they were they were small repairs, uh, five to $10,000. So the superintendents had autonomy to award those contracts rather than compete them. But often they were asking for two, three, $3,000 bribes on the front end to award the contract. Sometimes people were having to pay bribes to keep the contract or even get the work signed off on the back end. So good old-fashioned pay-to-play bribery. Although $3,000 kickback on something in the five dollars to $10,000 range doesn't seem like a real good deal for the uh, contractors. It's a wonder they agreed to it. You know, it's work, right? It, um, it, it gets you through the door, and it, and it gets you work, certainly. Or it shows how much profit there is in it if you can still get away with whole and having paid a third of the thing away in bribes. Exactly. You know, we, we think with the current charges we're looking at about $2 million in bribes collectively, I believe. Yeah, so enough to make a difference in the bribe taker's life, really. If there's even 70 of them, you know, it's still a pretty good sum there. And Absolutely. how did it come to light? Was it a whistleblower or what? You know, it's an ongoing investigation, so I want I want to be cautious about talking about how these charges came to light. Um, there certainly were allegations that, that, that came forward, and we teamed up with the New York Department of Investigations, Homeland Security Investigations, DOL, OIG was involved. Um, luckily, we had the attention of the Southern District of New York, um, and and we went after went after these these individuals and investigated them, and it resulted in the arrest of seventy individuals um, collectively. Early morning, uh, seven hundred agents came in from all over the country to conduct these arrests. So it was really a quite large operation. And it sounds like a multi-location operation because. The way you describe the New York City Housing Authority, there's not one place where it all happens. No, that's right. And in fact, I was I went up that morning to be with my agents at headquarters and to monitor the teams as they were out in the field conducting the arrest. You know, some of these arrests took, took place at six o'clock in the morning at homes. Others were on site when people arrived for work and others were, frankly, at airports. Some people were in transit. Uh, so it was um, a very large law enforcement effort that and- resulted in these arrests. How high up the chain of command did the briberies go? Was it directors of local offices or was it pretty much those down on the day-to-day contracting and management area keeping the housing repaired? Well, you know, that's a good question. And and currently the charges are against 70 former and current superintendents. I say current. They're obviously not current now, but they were current at the time. Um, and the matter's ongoing and additional charges might be brought. That will be dependent upon our partners at DOJ. My HUD, OA, HUD OIG agents will certainly continue to support the investigation and they'll follow the facts where they take them. And a couple of background questions. Is New York City Housing Authority 
the biggest one that HUD deals with? It is. It's the largest housing authority. Um, it services about one in 17 New Yorkers. There are collectively about 500,000 New Yorkers that live there. So this had a huge impact on New York. And, you know, Tom, you ask about, you know, the, the amount of the bribery and we talked about the amount of the, the contracts. For me, this was really about the public trust, right? Uh, protecting trust in these programs as much as the money, certainly. Um, you know, I think this certainly had an impact on New York, but something of this scale will draw a reputational risk um, and a trust risk from the American taxpayers and beneficiaries throughout the country. We're speaking with Ray Oliver Davis, Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. And just a basic question, why was this a federal matter? I'm presuming that most of the money originated with HUD as grants uh, to the New York City Housing Authority. Well, for us, um, certainly we, we go where the HUD money takes us and HUD spends about $2 billion a year at NYCHA. So that was that's easily, uh, when we look in terms of high risk uh, to the programs, that's easily a place that we were going. And frankly, you know, as I announced an audit while we were up there at the day of the takedown, and we were already looking at NYCHA for this audit when the takedown started to come to fruition. But we backed off a bit because it was a covert operation to let that go forward. And now we're pushing forward our audit. I was up uh, in New York yesterday for the entrance conference. So we'll be, we'll be heading out with that. And the audit will cover what what? What was it you were planning to audit in the first place? So, again, looking across the HUD portfolio, portfolio at risk and NYCHA being the largest public housing authority and a tremendous amount of money going there, um, we're looking to you know spend our resources in the riskiest parts. So we're looking at fraud risk management. And this is something that we've looked at department-wide at the very top within HUD. We're looking at um, is HUD specifically assessing the risk in their programs, and are they mitigating that risk, and are they continuing on in order to form an, anti, like an anti-fraud culture at the department? We found that, that HUD at the department level is really just starting out. They haven't conducted risk assessments within their own programs. Um, consistently, we've heard from the department, either we don't see fraud in our programs, or we think that that is a job for our grantees. Well, then that causes us to look at NYCHA because it is such a large program participant. So we're headed um, to look at them in terms of their own fraud risk management. It's basically the same thing. Are they assessing their risk? Are they continuing to get better with time? And are we ultimately, I think, producing this, what I'm going to call an ecosystem around the funding, where we have internal controls that are exceptionally strong, promoting anti-fraud culture, and we as law enforcement continue doing what we're doing to get the bad actors out of the program. And we just provide as much protection sure. for the money and, and the tenants as we can. You have a similar problem or analogous problem, let's say, to the Labor Department, which disperses money to state-operated unemployment fund systems where there's a lot of fraud and abuse and so forth. So it's kind of a recurring theme, federal money, state or local, municipally carried out programs, but ultimately there's still federal taxpayer dollars. Absolutely. Um and we've made this fraud risk management a priority recommendation for the department. So we'll see what what what, what comes of this. Uh, the CEO was present yesterday at NYCHA and all of her top executives, and we had a very good dialogue. And we're going to go in and learn what they're already doing and then see if we can make recommendations for improvements. Presuming she keeps her job, who knows where this could go, but I won't ask you to speculate on that one. But what about the big contracts? I mean, you're talking small potatoes, just a lot of little bribes over a period of time for, you know, I don't know, replacing bathrooms or whatever they do for five or $10,000. And that must happen tens of thousands of times throughout the vast NYCHA system. But what about, say, 
contracts to build a new building or a major renovation that might be a multi-million dollar operation. You really got to watch that one where it might have slightly different and more subtle bribery mechanisms. Those are good questions. And I'm hoping that this audit work will reveal um, some of the controls that are in place there or the lack of controls. You know, at the meeting yesterday, the CEO had her uh, chief compliance officer present. And that's something that is new for NYCHA and comes on the heels of the monitor um, the monitor being in place back in 2019. So we'll be asking those questions. We'll be learning what they're doing for the larger contracts as well. And it strikes me, getting back to the specific case, that if they're taking two, $3,000 bribes and five and $10,000 contracts, there's a lot of maintenance potentially that just doesn't get done because the money is siphoned off. Well, that's a good question too. Now, my understanding with the current charges is that we don't necessarily have allegations that in these particular instances that repairs weren't being made. Certainly, living conditions are the utmost important to us, and I'm sure that we'll be asking those questions along the way. Absolutely. Because you see these driving into New York, you know, you see these gigantic projects, 30-story buildings and 10 of them in a row. You really wonder what goes on inside of a vast complex like that. And Tom, really, when we're talking about these micro-purchases, the reason the superintendents were given autonomy on the front end is so they could move quickly, so they could help improve conditions. That was the the policy and the theory around giving them their own um, authority to award the contracts. But as we can see, people took advantage of that. So we'll be looking at that. Yeah, it's almost the equivalent of microcard purchases at the or credit card micro purchases at the federal level. You really need the diffusion of that authority because you can't have centralized management of every little tiny thing or it would come to a halt at the other extreme. Absolutely. You have to have a risk tolerance and you have to be on the lookout for bad actors at all times. Right. So if there's a poor culture of risk management and anti-fraud controls at that level, it's a good guess it could creep up to higher levels. And then next thing you know, you're talking real money. We'll see. Like I said, we ultimately want to have um, protection of the funds, deterrence, and protect the tenants. So we'll, we'll see where the audit takes us, certainly. All right. Sounds like a big job ahead of you. Ray Oliver Davis is Inspector General at Housing and Urban Development. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much, Tom. I really appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected. 
and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance and I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, 
This is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce, because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role 
with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You You have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, 
Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.